Matthew chapter 20 is where we'll be today, but we're going to be looking at verses 20 through 28. But as we're looking at this, I want us to ponder something. Following Jesus is always more difficult to do than the Christian could imagine. A more dangerous struggle that faces the Christian, particularly the veteran Christian, I like to say, the the, the more dangerous struggle for those who've walked with Christ for a long time is the sin of pride and ambition. Our, Our journey from Matthew 18 to now Matthew 20 seems to have revealed a a common lesson concerning the kingdom of heaven. The desire for greatness among the religious elites, the wealthy and the successful, and even the desire of the 12 disciples for greatness. All of these scenes from Matthew 18, even up here to Matthew 20, it's a common theme. It continually gives Jesus opportunity to reveal the erroneous perception of greatness that many of us have in the kingdom of heaven. Have you noticed a pattern here in the last few chapters? I mean, this scene of Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28, is, uh, is repeated only once more in the Gospels. Mark chapter 10 is the only other place in the Gospels we see this particular scene. And so we'll be looking at both Matthew 20 and Mark 10 and comparing differences there today. But now we come to, in Matthew 20, a second scene on pride and desire to be the greatest. As I've been preparing and wrestling with these texts, I, I, I have to confess, it, it's, it's Muhammad Ali's boldness and, and brashness of I am the greatest that kept coming to mind. A non-Christian, by the way. A good boxer, a good athlete, but not the greatest. Uh, This time, a mother pushes to the front of the line and boldly asks Jesus for special treatment for her two sons. Got any mamas in this room who've done that? Proudly so, I'm sure. But here, here's what we're looking at. Jesus, when he looks at these two sons, these were James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They were part of his inner circle of three, right? We have Peter, James, and John, the inner circle of three within the 12 that were the closest to Jesus. And these two sons of Zebedee were in that circle. We saw this back in Matthew 17 at the Mountain Transfiguration. Who did Jesus take with him up on the mountain? Peter, James, and John. Where does Jesus, who does Jesus take with him in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26, right before his crucifixion is Peter, James, and John. Now, we've seen Peter in chapters 18, 19, and 20 uh, put his foot in his mouth asking bold questions. Now we're seeing the other two of the inner circle, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. I mean, now Jesus, if you remember, he, he fondly calls the sons of Zebedee, James and John, he fondly calls them sons of thunder as well. That tells you a lot of their personality. If Jesus looks at these two men and calls them sons of thunder... What kind of personality do they have? But Jesus used them for his kingdom purposes. He loved them. And, and, and we see here a scene where Jesus will shape their personalities even further. I mean, this interaction here in verses 20 through 28 with this mother and the 12 is, if you think about it, a pivotal moment in Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. As he, as he further prepares his disciples They're going to have a difficult life of suffering and rejection and martyrdom after his departure. And Jesus, on his journey to Jerusalem, is continually teaching them and preparing them. In other words, Jesus humbles the pride 
of their own, for their own good. He's humbling their pride for their own good as they are not yet prepared for the cost of truly following Christ or leading his church. That's what we're going to see here. So if you're able to stand, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am able to drink? They said to him, we are able. Verse 23, he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Verse 26. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would first be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mm. Let's pray. To Father God, thank you for the words of your son. He models for us greatness in his humility and in his sacrifice. And in our pride, Father, we fail to be humble. For us, greatness means confidence and boldness. For us, greatness means great achievement. For us, status and position define our greatness. But God, I thank you that you remind us in this bold teaching that humility and servanthood to the point of being a slave for others is actually greater in your kingdom than anything else. And so God, I pray this morning you would speak to all of us here. We all suffer from the great sin of pride to the point that we are so blind to it we don't realize it. So God, I pray that you would use this time for your glory. Please edify your people today. Humble us as we are needing humility. Humble us, Father, as our pride overwhelms us. This is your time, Father. Please speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. Matthew's account, and here again, opens with the mother who has ambition for her two sons. Verse 20 and 21. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Mark's account is a little bit different, though. In Mark chapter 10, Mark does not mention the mother. Instead, Mark tells us that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That's Mark 10, 35. So these two accounts start off a little bit differently. Matthew's account shows that the mother approached Jesus. Mark's account says that the two sons requested of Jesus. I think that is not a contradiction. I think they're speaking of the same thing. I mean, imagine the scene. 
after many scenes in Matthew's gospel where Pharisees and a rich young ruler of the synagogue and even Peter himself, they questioned Jesus about greatness in the kingdom of heaven. Still, two more of Jesus' 12 here see an opportunity to gain high position beside him on his throne in heaven. It's a, it's a continuing process, a problem in the ministry of Jesus and his disciples. I mean, I would think that by now, Jesus' lesson of humility as the greatest attribute of the kingdom citizen, I mean, you would think that would have resonated by now with those who followed him at this point. But once again, the greatest sin that all of humanity wrestles with raises its ugly head here. I mean, this time among the two brothers who I think arguably brought their mother to the feet of Jesus as a ploy to manipulate their master for their own gain is at work here. C.S. Lewis artfully speaks in his classic work, Mere Christianity. How many people have read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity? I challenge you, if you have not read it, read it. If you have read it, read it once a year. It doesn't replace the scriptures. But oh, how masterfully C.S. Lewis thinks through Christian life. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity speaks of what he calls the great sin. I mean, I bring up this example in contrast to the request by this mother and these two men of Jesus and even of the Pharisees and even of the rich young ruler who all ask the same question. They all ask, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? But I think the implied meaning of all these questions is the same. Really what everyone is asking is, can I be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That's a common theme in all of these interactions. Here's how C.S. Lewis describes what he calls the great sin. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I am talking of is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. That's the, I think that's one of the most precise way to describe the pride of sin or the sin of pride. Goes both ways, doesn't it? I mean, we see the great sin exhibited not only in these two sons of Zebedee, but I think more directly from their mother here. I mean, the trouble with a mother's desire for her children is that we can never acknowledge the pride in her desire. I mean, a mother's love for her children is a high virtue. It truly is. But we do not dare question that love. Never challenge the pride that can be a sinful ambition in her love for her children. That's a dangerous place to be. Notice the goodness that a mother has for her children. She has a love for her children. She wants the best for her children. That is admirable. That is honorable. That is exactly as God wants it to be. Yet notice how that can be distorted so easily into pride. And the danger is how many men in this room would dare challenge their wife? You're being prideful in your love for your children. See, the devil knows we don't dare challenge that, do we men? So ladies, I say this lovingly to you as a pastor Love and ambition for your family is wonderful. But the devil will use that because he knows we don't dare question or challenge that. 
That's what I think that's what we're seeing here in this interaction with this mother of the sons of thunder. But, 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 but lest we spend too much time admonishing this dear mother, let's not forget that the two sons here, James and John, the sons of thunder, were standing right beside their mother as she made this bold request. They were standing right there. I mean, these two sons, grown men, by the way, reveal the greater sin of pride, I think, and the more direct reflection of sin. I mean, Mark's account says that the sons themselves petitioned Jesus for the best thrones in glory, not the mother. I don't think that's a contradiction. I think even though the mother may have been the one on her knees before the Lord, I think Mark's account makes it real clear that it's the sons of thunder who did this. Maybe they put her up to it. Do children manipulate their mothers to get what they want? No. Yes. <laughs> <I> remember... <laughs> yes. yes. Have the sons of thunder here, we're, we're just kind of inferring possibly, have they kind of manipulated mama? Jesus won't say no to you, mama. He might say no to us. Go talk to him. They're guilty. They're more guilty than her. I mean, notice the choice of words here in in Mark chapter 10, verses 35 and 37. Here's what he says. These are the the words from the, the, the sons of thunder. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And then in verse 37, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one to your left in your glory. Mark's account says these words came from the men, not the mother. Notice the choice of words from James and John here. In your glory. I mean, these brothers, they were positioning themselves on which thrones they would occupy among the 12 thrones of judgment that Jesus promised to them back in Matthew 19, 28. Remember that? When they asked the Lord, what is in all of this sacrifice for us, Jesus? He said, you 12 will be granted thrones in heaven and you will sit with me in my glory. So what's happening here in Matthew 20, verses 20 through 35, or 20 through 30? These men were jockeying for position. Who gets the best seats before Jesus? I mean, but, but, but lastly, let's also notice the motivation of their request. This is in an act of worship, they ask. In in verse 20, and kneeling before him, this mother makes the request, implying that they were worshiping Jesus. I mean, kneeling is an act of worship. The prideful request was made during an act of worship. The King James in Matthew chapter 20, 20 words it this way. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. Kneeling in the ESV, kneeling before him and asked. So kneeling is an act of worship. I mean, the mixed purpose of this scene could be that the request began, I think, maybe as a desire to be closer to Jesus. Let's just give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe in the back of their mind, we only want to be nearer to you, Lord, might be the intent or the misguided thinking, but clearly I think Jesus sees the truth of the heart here. I mean, to be closest to Jesus is to be one of humility. To be of ambitious pride is not wanting to be close to Jesus. Matthew 20, let's look here at verses 22 through 23. And he said, let's, let's look at 21. And he said to her, what do you want? 
And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left. But in verse 22, Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And look at their answer in verse 22. We are able. Pretty bold. I mean, the, the, the sons of Zebedee make their request for glory immediately after Jesus speaks for the third time. Remember, he speaks for the third time of his humiliation and suffering that will come at the hands of the chief priests and the Romans. I mean, what's happening here in verses 20 through, or 22 through 24 here, these words are reflecting what happened in verses 17 through 19 and verse tw- in chapter 20. Look here at 17 through 19. We didn't read that today, but if you look at verses 17 through 19, this merges directly into this scene. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged, and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. And then notice in verse 20, the segue. Then the mother comes up. Can you imagine what's happening? I mean, it means at this time, at the same time that Jesus is speaking to his 12 about the coming crucifixion and suffering that he will endure, at that very same moment, this request for status in the kingdom is remade. How rude. You see that? I mean, Jesus' reply to the request for high position here in 22 and 23, I mean, direct, it shows the prideful disciples at at their core. Remember that this is the third time that Jesus tells his disciples privately what awaited him in Jerusalem. We saw it in Matthew 16, 21, and then in Matthew 17, verses 22 and 23. And each time that Jesus speaks about going to Jerusalem with his 12, Matthew tells us that they were greatly distressed. But notice that this time, the third time that Jesus tells them, what must happen in Jerusalem. Notice that the response of these two brothers and their mother immediately following what Jesus says about Jerusalem is not distress, it's pride. Jesus says to them in verses 22 and 23 that he has a cup of burden to carry that they cannot drink. He said, Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Now, the King James Version includes the idea of shared baptism of Jesus in verse 22, in addition to the cup. Here's what the King James says. He said to them, ye shall drink indeed my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. I mean, the juxtaposition of the two ordinances of the church, I think, cannot be overlooked here. I mean, the cup and the baptism, the Lord's Supper, and the Lord's baptism, both point to the burdens of our Lord in his suffering, in his death, and in his resurrection, all for what? We sang about it this morning, the propitiation of God's wrath against our sin. I mean, the cup represents Christ's blood, the sign of the new covenant. Baptism represents Christ's death and resurrection, and we come alongside and we share in that death of our Savior, the death of our old self and the resurrection of our new self, new life with Christ. 
I think the words of Jesus here matter. You don't know what you're asking of me. He's pointing out to them, your idea of greatness is much different than reality. And this is a very important place, I think, to pause and to reflect on this question. For Jesus asked this of every believer whom he calls to follow him. He asked every one of us, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Are you able to participate and be baptized in the baptism of death that I endure? Every Christian is asked that question by our Lord. We, we have a naive romanticism of what it looks like to follow Christ, don't we? I mean, we naturally respond, of course I'm able. But pay close attention to the pride and the self-conceit that, we, that C.S. Lewis warned us of, this, this type of bold reply, I am able, meaning that it is under my power that I will share with Jesus what he must endure. The I am. We're replacing the great I am of God with our I am. I mean, I don't think that Jesus wants us to endure suffering and to share in his suffering under our own power. He expects all of his disciples to share in this suffering because that's what he says in verse 23. You will drink my cup. Meaning you will, disciples, share in my suffering. I mean, what Jesus means is his cup and what we will drink and his baptism that he must endure, that we are to be baptized with, is what he shared again in verses 18 and 19. Here's what he says. I want to read it again. See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. How many of us, if we understand the reality of that suffering, are truthfully saying, yes, Lord, I will follow. We want to follow into the the happy place of Christian life, don't we? We don't truly want to follow into the place of suffering and persecution. And can we go so far as, say, crucifixion and death? I mean, this is the cup that Jesus must bear and that we as his followers will share with him. We will. I mean, this is the cup of remembrance that we will share today. As we close our worship today at the Lord's table, we share in the cup of mockery, of flogging, crucifixion, death. That's what Jesus is calling us to share in And apparently it was common practice among Jesus' 12 throughout his ministry for pride and jealousy. I mean, this is not the first time that we see this, that they fought amongst themselves as brothers. Even at the Last Supper, the night before Jesus' trial and crucifixion, this was when Jesus ushered in the ordinance that we now call the Lord's Supper or communion. In Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 26, we read about a similar dispute. And this was following Jesus' interaction with Judas at the table. 
Luke 22, verse 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. Same language that we're going to see in Matthew 20, verses 26, actually verses 25 through 28. Same language. So this must have been an ongoing lesson for his 12. We see it here uh, with this sons of Zebedee coming and making this request, and that was Jesus' response. We see it again at the end of the ministry in Luke 22 at the, at the final supper, of the, uh, at the, final supper uh, the Lord's Supper there. Jesus had to continually teach them this right up to the very end. Notice the language of Jesus at the Last Supper, again, is the same language we see here in the scene of the sons of Zebedee. Remember that this institution of the Lord's Supper by our Savior is intended, what? To remind us of the new covenant that was ushered in by His blood and His broken body. Remember that in Matthew 20, 23, Jesus reminds these sons of Zebedee, and I'm going to say all of us too, that you will drink my cup, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. I mean, this is a further reason why our tradition of the Lord's Supper is only permitted, is, is, to, is to only permit those who are both redeemed, which means genuinely converted, genuinely saved, genuinely forgiven, and baptized at the same time. Both are necessary. Because I think here we see evidence that Jesus expects his followers to share in his, in his cup of the new covenant, the cup of suffering, and in the baptism of his death and resurrection. Both. That's why at the end of our service, I will request that if you are a visitor here, or if you're a child here, if you have not been both redeemed and forgiven by our Savior and followed in baptism, we ask you not share in this. Both are necessary. Both, both are important. Both are necessary. I mean, genuine conversion is the first sign of genuine repentance and genuine forgiveness. And, and, and this is also a condition of genuine humility. Humility in agreement to suffer with Christ in His suffering. Then and only then, in true humility, can one appreciate and also remember the sacrifice our Savior made for us. Only then can we all come around this table as we do in worship to remember the suffering of our Savior on our behalf. We share this with Him. We share in His humility. Now, we were going to read verses 20 through 28 today. Can I, can I say verses 24 through 28 next week? I think that's a second sermon. Nathan, you okay with that? Nathan takes care of our bulletins for us. And I don't throw, I don't throw twists to you every, a lot, but that's what I love about Nathan. He's a, he's a flexible brother. Amen. And he's a big help to me. It's, again, it's making the bulletin doesn't take a long time, but it's just something else. It's important in the church. There are a lot of little something else's in the church that always have to be done. And I'm so grateful for those who step up and do those something else's. It's a wonderful thing. 
I want to ask Nathan if you'll come on forward. I want to stop at this point. I really prayed through this. I, I had a I had sermon ready to go through verse 28, but we'll, I think we can dig into verses 24 through 28 even deeper next week. So what are we walking away from here? The introduction here of the sons of Zebedee, as they come to Jesus, they have a bold request. And what is their request? Something for themselves. And Jesus corrects them. Again. Again. And how does he correct them? He reminds them of the suffering that he will endure. And if they are his genuine disciples, they will endure likewise. I mean, I think our Savior even implies that all of his disciples will will suffer more greatly than he did, and they will do more great things than he ever did in his time on earth, that the church that he establishes through these 12 over time will do even greater things. But those greater things are through the endurance of suffering and death. Flogging. Are we ready and honestly committed to that? So as we transition now, I'd like us to transition into an attitude, a time of worship at the Lord's table. And Joe Loretta is normally the one who coordinates that, and he's not here today. Could I ask again, Paul, would you lead that, please? And Carl, come on forward. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we read this. The Apostle Paul tells the church in Corinth, as they were struggling with pride, they were struggling with status amongst the church body to the point that Paul had to write uh, words of condemnation to them. He had to scold them in the letter to the, the first letter to the Corinthians. It was a letter of scolding. If you read it, I read amongst you that you, some of you eat before others arrive. He brings out to them that their pride and their self-serving jealousy of one another does not honor our Lord. Here's what he says in verse 23 of chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy matter will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This discerning of the body, I think, has two meanings. It's both our physical presence, but I think larger, it is the body of Christ that we discern. None of us are worthy. But this is a time of reflection and prayerful meditation. As the gentlemen distribute the elements, use this time for prayer so that you know that all is well between you and the Lord, between you and maybe someone else. And we remember the suffering that our Savior endured and that we share. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. 
We thank you, Lord, that you do not allow this great sin of pride to overwhelm us who are your faithful. It is through this great sin of pride that we fail in every level. Every other sin that we are guilty of is rooted in pride first. So dear God, I pray that you would forgive us. But that you would remind us in this act of worship, this ordinance of breaking the bread and sharing the juice. That your son, Jesus Christ, endured much more than we could ever imagine. And he's calling us to do the same. To kill the pride in ourselves requires your help. And only your mercy and grace can do that. So we thank you for that cleansing of our, our guilt and our pride through the blood of your son. Lord, I pray you would use this time as an act of worship. And you'd use this time, Father, as an act of loving us and edifying our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. to read from Luke chapter 22 as our Lord institutes what we now call the Lord's Supper. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So please take the bread. And understand that this is Christ's body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of him. And then likewise, he took the cup. He said, this cup is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is the new covenant of grace and a new heart, a genuine repentance and a genuine conversion of a new heart in Christ. That's what this symbolizes. And it took our Lord's blood to make that possible. So do this in remembrance of him. Amen. God bless you guys. All hearts clear. It's been good to be in the Lord's house. Amen.